I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we're talking about Black History Month. So grab your Saratoga chips. And let's get civical. Hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Let's Get Civical. I'm Lizzie Stewart. And I'm Arden Walentowski. And we're recording on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Day. Yeah. My, uh, this is relevant. My boyfriend got me a Mm. present, and it was a present in the form of a book. And the book title is. Sex and the Founding Fathers. Listen, and he knows you so well. He knows exactly what kiss. you need and want. There's chapters on several Founding Fathers and their sex lives. And yeah. I can't wait to really dive deep oh into... Yes. I want to I want a book report. Will you write I just, like a, I you yes. have to write it, but just like a verbal book report. I will I will be reporting back on the the different sex lives of the different founding fathers. The one I'm most interested in is the chapter on John Adams. Oh yeah. Just because I'm curious. He never I'm got curious, hugged. Never got hugged. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, perhaps him and Abigail figured something out and I'm just interested to see what that is, you yeah. know? I mean, because there's also, like, a chapter on Ben Franklin, but it's like, I know that Ben Franklin is a stallion in the sheets. Uh, yes, that we've so, established. it's You don't you have know, that hair and up. be bad in bed. Exactly right. You don't wear those glasses yes. and not put out. Yes, you know exactly. what I mean? Yep. But John Adams is a dark horse in the sexual game, so I'm very interested to see how he pans out mm-hmm. in this book. But anywho, it's Valentine's Day, the impeachment trial just wrapped um, in kind of a not surprising way. So big, big news there. Um, gosh, what else? This been a, it's been another one of those weeks where I'm like, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. <laughs> a lot to unpack there. It's a lot to unpack. But, you know, all of that to say, this episode is not about any of that. Because no. whilst all of this other bullshit is happening, we are in the month of February, which is... Black History Month, and it is something that I feel kind of, it's getting better, the recognition of Black History Month, but still I don't think has 
fully sort of gotten into our education systems Mm. and all those sorts of institutions. So we definitely wanted to take an episode to talk about Black History Month, talk about, you know, prominent Black Americans in history. And so we kind of modeled this after our International Women's Day episode where Arden and I each researched individuals that we found inspiring. There are obviously countless individuals of note and prominence. So us choosing these individuals doesn't mean that if we didn't choose somebody, they are not prominent. Um, And I look forward to doing more and more of these episodes sort of as we continue to grow. But before we jump into talking about specific people, I just wanted to give a sort of overview of Black History Month Yes, before, so we can know sort of its origins and where it comes from and have a little bit more information about just why it's in the month of February of all months and why et cetera, is it in February? So That's so funny. This, okay, but you're going to tell me. I'm literally about to tell you. I think I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, honey bunny. I'm going to tell us all right mm. now. So these notes are coming from our great friends at history.com. So... Black History Month is an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans at a time for recognizing their central role in U.S. history. Also known as African American History Month, the event grew out of Negro History Week, the brainchild of noted historian Carter G. Woodson and other prominent African Americans. Since 1976, every U.S. president has officially designated the month of February as Black History Month. I'll talk about why in just a second. And other countries around the world, including Canada and the United Kingdom, also devote a month to celebrating Black history. It's not necessarily February for all of them, but it's starting to become this global thing to have Black History Month somewhere in the calendar year. Yeah. So the story of Black History Month begins in 1915, half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States. That September, the Harvard-trained historian Carter G. Woodson and prominent minister Jesse E. Moreland founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by Black Americans and other peoples of African descent. Known today as the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, the group sponsored a National Negro History Week in 1926, choosing the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Oh. Exactly, see? The event inspired schools and communities nationwide to organize local celebrations, establish history clubs, and host performances and lectures. Wow. In the decades that followed, mayors of cities across the country began issuing yearly proclamations recognizing Negro History Week. By the late 1960s, thanks in part to the civil rights movement and the growing awareness of Black identity, Negro History Week has evolved into Black History Month. President Gerald Ford, of all presidents, oh, wow. officially recognized Black History Month in 1976, calling upon the public to, quote, seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. And wow. so we've been doing, I know, we've been doing a Black History Month-esque type of situation ever since 1976. But that's kind of like where it comes from, you know? That's super interesting. I had no idea it was that it had evolved from like a week long event and that mm-hmm. there, in some ways, it goes back to like, what did you say, like the 1910s? Night, like early. Yeah. 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 1915. Yeah. 1915. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, like, good, great, yay. But like, I just didn't yeah. realize that it went back that far. It's amazing. And this is why we learn. This is why we learn stuff. This is literally this why, is we, why put we learn our voices on microphones. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So that's again like the the overviewiest of overviews of Black History Month. There is more obviously nuance to its history, sort of as a celebration. But we wanted to dedicate the majority of this episode to actual figures who perhaps are not. Again, in the yeah. mainstream educational sphere, when we talk about influential people in history. So 
we're going to each, I mean, we've each researched people. I don't know who Arden has. Arden doesn't know who I have. I'm curious to see, as always, if we have crossover. I think we we, we might, but I don't know. We, we might. might not. I'm interested. We might. I mean, so Arden, do you want to? I'll start. I'll start. I took a different, not a different approach, but I like, I, when I started doing the research, I was like, I want to know about inventors. Like, we don't know enough about, like, black Ooh. inventors. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I have an inventor. Oh, I wonder if we have the same inventor. I, have the same I do inventor. have one inventor. I do. I will say that for as many times as we've done, as we've done shows like this, where we trade off information where we don't know what the other person has, only once during those, like, the 50 facts did we have some overlap. Yeah. And it wasn't even that much. I'm very proud of our intuition with each yeah. other. Well, because yeah. we have different interests, you know. It's so true. But I'm excited. Tell me who your first person is. Okay. So my first person is Louis Latimer. Okay. I didn't do them. I great. didn't do them. Great. Great. great I love great. it. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Louis great. Latimer. So this is all coming from the Louis Latimer House Museum, which I kind of love. And love. I feel like it's – this is definitely a trip we should take because it's in or around New York City. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know I love a road trip. Yep. So Louis Latimer, his full name is Louis Howard Latimer. He was born in 1848 and died in 1928. He was an African-American inventor, electrical pioneer, and a son of fugitive slaves. With no access to formal education, Latimer taught himself mechanical drawing while in the Union Navy. Great. Love. Love. And he eventually became a chief draftsman, patent expert, and inventor. He worked with three of the greatest scientific inventors in American history, Alexander Graham Bell, Hiram S. Maxim, and Thomas... (laughs) Thomas Edison, he played a critical... So why did you laugh before Edison? <laughs> because... <laughs> because I, thought you were article... about to, I thought you couldn't say the last name, and then you said Edison, and I was like, pardon. <laughs> Come on. Well, we've known about this dude since we were in the first grade. Because Come the on. article put in his middle name, which made me laugh, because A, they put in his middle name, like, he's an assassin. What's his middle and name? B, the... <laughs> Alva. <laughs> Alva? A L V A. Little okay, that's a fun fact. Okay, Thomas Alva Edison. Thomas Edison's middle name is Alva. (laughs) I mean, you can see why he leaves it out. Thomas Alva Edison invented the light bulb. Absolutely does not have the same Mm -mm, swing. mm -mm. Nope, nope, nope. So, uh, so Latimer, Louis Latimer worked with Thomas Edison too. He played a critical role in the development of the telephone and invented the carbon filament, a significant improvement in the production of, of the incandescent light bulb. So he was like a big part of getting the type of light bulb that we know as the light bulb today. Love it. I know. Just like, you know, just like give Thomas Edison all the credit. Like it's. That's fine. Yeah. Outside his professional career, Latimer developed a passion for visual art, creative writing, and music. Some products of his artistic endeavors can be viewed at the Lewis Latimer House Museum. The house itself is a modest, a modest Queen Anne style wood frame suburban residence constructed between 1887 and 1889. I bet it's gorgeous. I bet it's gorgeous. I love when they're like, it's just a cute whatever. And you're like, uh, it's a little it's quaint amazing. country village I, house. Yes. I live in a studio <laughs> apartment in the city. Anything yeah. that has walls, I am thrilled. Yeah. Latimer lived in the house from 1903 until his death in 1928. The house remained in the Latimer family until 1963. When threatened by demolition, the house was moved from Holly Avenue to its present location in 1988. They literally picked this house Wait up and a moved second. it. I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's crazy. Like, I know we can do that. I know we have the capability to move houses. It's just an insane thought. It's just an insane yeah. How do you – Especially a house that's stay? built – That's, like, yeah. that old – yeah, like how does it stay intact? Well, that's my that that's my question exactly. I I like a new house. I get like maybe we have the yeah. wherewithal to be like we might need to move this house someday. So let's whatever. But an old mm-hmm. house, I'm just like, how do you even? How yeah. do you? And what do you, do you carry it on? You know, it takes a couple guys. Someone call me <laughs> and walk me through this process because yeah. I am confused I am as confused. to how this works. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so we've moved the house. It's, it's the house so crazy. Moved. So they've they moved the right. house uh, to its present location uh, in the year 1988. The house is now owned by the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. The city owns the house. Mm-hmm. It is operated by mm-hmm. the Lewis H. Latimer Fund and is a member sure. of the Historic House Trust. Love. So we have to yeah, go. They're trying. Like it's it's one of those. I was like, 
you know, I was, it's one of those moments when I read this and I was like, I'm really glad we're like, so, like people have done the work to like mm-hmm. keep this man's legacy in whatever house, yes. way yep. they can. Like they've kept the yep. house. They've like, you know, they're doing what they can to make sure that his name and memory kind of lives on in some way. I really, mm-hmm. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was good. So. Okay. I love that. Latimer. Yep. Telephone. Light bulb. We love light bulbs. Really do. Big fan. Big fan of the bulbs. Big fan of the bulbs. Okay, so I'm going to do my first one. This person, I think, is a name that I would hope a lot of people are familiar with, but, again, is one of those names that's left out of sort of education of prominent figures, Mm. and I'm doing W.E.B. Du Bois. Yay! Yep. Yep, we're going to do – and, like, quite honestly, you know, this is obviously an overview. The work – like, what he did is huge and uh, he did a lot. So it's a, it's a big overview. Eventually, we might just have to do an entire episode d- yeah, dedicated to him. So just know that what I'm saying here is an overview of the work and that he has kind of, like, a whole legacy to what he accomplished. But anywho, so this is coming from History.com. Born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which is kind of funny because I'm literally 15 that's, minutes from Great Barrington right now. I was going to say, that's where you are. <laughs> that's where I am. Born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts on February 23rd, 1868. So his anniversary of his birth is coming up. Du Bois' birth certificate has his name as William E. Dubose, maybe? D-U-B-O-I-S-E. Uh, so there's an E added to the end yeah. of it. Dubois, maybe? Yeah. Dubois, probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dubois became the first person in his extended family to attend high school and did so at his mother's insistence. In 1883, Dubois began to write articles for papers like the New York Globe and the Freeman. He initially attended Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a school for black students because segregation. Yeah. Du Bois attended Harvard University starting in 1888, and eventually he received advanced degrees in history. In 1892, he worked towards a PhD at the University of Berlin, of all places. And his doctoral thesis, The Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, 1638 to 1870, became his first book and a standard in American education covering slavery. Wow. And this is his, like, doctorate thesis. (laughs) So great. This is his first first one out the gate, and that is, like, a standard in how we, you know, teach slavery in America. He took a position at the University of Pennsylvania in 1896 and conducted a study of the city's seventh ward, and he published in 1899 the Philadelphia Negro. And this study is considered one of the earliest examples of statistical work being used for sociological purposes, with extensive fieldwork resulting in hundreds of interviews conducted door-to-door by Du Bois. Mapping out the Seventh Ward and carefully documenting familiar and work structures, he concluded that the Black community's greatest challenges were poverty, crime, lack of education, and distrust of those outside of the community. So again, this this wow. piece of this report basically that he did called the Philadelphia Negro, he's laying the groundwork for sociology, yeah. basically. Yeah. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics offered him a job in 1897, leading to several groundbreaking studies on Black Southern households in Farmville, Virginia, that uncovered how slavery still affected the personal lives of African Americans. He would do four more studies for the Bureau, two in Alabama and two in Georgia, and these studies were considered radical at the time when sociology existed in pure theoretical forms. Mm. So he was pivotal in making investigation and data analysis crucial to sociological study. After that, he moved his family to Atlanta University, where he taught sociology and worked on his additional Bureau of Labor Statistical Studies. Among the books written during this period were The Souls of Black Folk, which Mm. is a collection of sociological essays examining the Black experience in America. And based on the research that I've done so far, this seems to be like kind of what like the Philadelphia Negro and the Souls of Black Folk are the two most well-known pieces of writing from him. 
and most read the most often, I would say. In 1910, I mean, we're like, we're not even done with half of his work here, by the way. In 1910, he accepted the directorship of the recently formed NAACP. He moved to New York City and served as the editor of the organization's monthly magazine, The Crisis. The magazine was a huge success and became influential covering race relations and black culture. The magazine stood out for its continual endorsement and coverage of women's suffrage. Wow. Yeah, I know. Du Bois would work for the NAACP for 24 years. Oh, shit. After a second stint at Atlanta University, he returned uh, to the NAACP as director of special research in 1944 and represented the organization at the first meeting of the United Nation. Then 20 years later, Du Bois died on August 27, 1963, in Ghana and was given a state funeral. <gasps> so, I mean, talk about... Oh. <laughs> I know. And again, it's like, it's hard because this is a person who has done so much and um, sort of his research and his study has not only impacted sort of how we do research and study on social right. issues, right? but also brought to the forefront, you know, maybe arguably for the first time in sort of intellectual study, the plight of black americans and the impact of slavery and all of right. these things that had not happened before and yeah. he was kind of the person solely responsible for it so had to give him some space today yes. wanted to start off with a bit of a heavy heavy hitter but i don't th i don't think we're done examining him and his works no no and i will say like i know some of this stuff that you talked about but i'm sure there's stuff about w e du bois that i just don't i have i have no idea about that i would love yep. to learn so that was my first one you're up yes. next okay so i am doing my next person is alice allison dunnigan and this is coming from marie claire uh, an article in marie oh, claire love. and kentucky educational television okay great yep 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 so Alice Allison Dunnigan was the first African-American female White House correspondent. I love it. Yep. I love it. She was also the first black female member of the state and House of Representatives press galleries. I love it. Yep. I love it. She was born in 1906 to a sharecropper father and a mother who took in laundry. As a teenager attending the local segregated school, Dunnigan began writing short reports for the black newspaper Owensboro. Her love for writing okay. began when she was 13, penning one-sentence pieces for the Owensboro Enterprise. After training as a teacher at what is now Kentucky State University, Dunnigan got a job in a segregated school in Todd County, but she still had to do domestic labor for local white families to make ends meet. During World War II, she moved to Washington, D.C. To, to find civil service work. While in D.C., she took classes at Howard University and began writing for Black-owned newspapers and what was then called the Associated Negro, Negro Press News Agency. She became the chief of the Associated Negro Press in 1947, which would allow her a year later to become the first female African-American to follow a president's campaign out on the road. Mm. Yep. So while she had to pay her way, this is bullshit, so while she had to pay her way mm -hmm to cover Harry S. Truman on his Western campaign trail, she would finally receive the respect she deserved when John F. Kennedy was elected. And she served as an education consultant on the president's committee of equal opportunity until 1965. So he, so she had to like, she covered Truman's campaign, but she basically had to like spend the money she was earning. Right. As a correspondent to do that because. Right. They for wouldn't reasons. pay for her obvious reasons mm -hmm. um and then and then after that election and when kennedy was in office she served under his in his administration on the president's committee on equal opportunity uh until 1965 and i love that yeah and i love that i love that i was Badass. like first female black correspondent of the white house tell me yes hit me absolutely yeah absolutely we're gonna take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. 
But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, my next one. Also someone that recently more people know about because of a a film, but I... Jose, because I'm a I'm a space I'm a space <gasps> nerd, so I'm obviously talking about Katherine Johnson. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad Catherine? you yes. did this. Yeah. I almost like this was my first. Did you almost do Katherine Johnson? I almost did, and then I was like, mm, I feel like I feel like I got a I feel like I feel like that could be an overlap. So I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. I I mean I couldn't help myself. I love NASA. I love space. And I fucking love know, space. I, it's insane. It's insane what she did. So this is coming from National Geographic. So Johnson was born in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, on August 26, 1918. She started a high school when she was just 10 years old. Wow. 10. And college when she was 15. After she graduated with honors at 18, Johnson taught black students math. She later enrolled in graduate school at West Virginia University to study math, but had to leave early to raise a family and return to teaching. In 1952, when she was 34 years old, she learned about jobs for black women with mathematics and computing skills at the Langley Laboratory at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Aeronautics is such a hard word to say and read. It's very intimidating. Yeah. Which would later become NASA. (laughs) She and other women worked as, quote, human computers, figuring out different calculations needed for spaceflight. So, like, this is what I can't, like, I know we know this. I know that before computers, people literally did math on paper. But it's insane that it was to do things like go into space. Like, we could go into space. Like, we had the technology to go into space but not do the math, not on paper. Isn't that crazy? It's n- Isn't it's that crazy? <laughs> watching that movie and then it's also insane. watching like a movie like Apollo 13, you're like, it is amazing these spaceships oh got off the ground because we're literally I'm like do, using rulers to double check math. Like, it's literally sli- duct tape, uh, duct, tape duct tape got us into space. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. One of her biggest accomplishments at NASA was helping calculate the trajectory of the country's first human spaceflight in 1961, making sure astronaut Alan B. Shepard Jr. had a safe trip. Like, like, talk about pressure. Yeah. Like, talk about pr- a, a job with high pressure. It's like, I have to do the math to make sure that this human being not only can get into space, 
but get like the amount of times that I can't do simple subtraction and to think that like a mistake like that could lead to an explosion of a space shuttle. Like it's crazy. 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 A year later, she helped figure out John Glenn's orbit of the planet, another American first. And then in 1969, she calculated the trajectories of Neil Armstrong's historic mission to the moon on Apollo 11. So, like, you know, I'm all about saying, like, Neil Armstrong, like, absolutely took the step. We love to see it. Had the line. Delivered it beautifully. But, like, how did he get there? Yeah. Catherine Johnson, among others. You know? Yet, this is, again, National Geographic's words, yet unlike the white male astronauts she helped launch into space, no one knew of the groundbreaking work Johnson and dozens of other Black women did for NASA and space exploration. It wasn't until the 2016 release of the movie, Hidden Figures, that these women received widespread recognition. So, again, it's, you know, it is not just Katherine Johnson, but she was obviously uh, one of the many Black women who were literally human computers getting people into space. But, yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, I think it's a great movie. I made the mistake of watching it on a plane, which is stressful because they're going, like, they're going into space. And, like, I know that they're going to be fine. Like, I know that these astronauts aren't going to, like, go up and, like, blow up. But when you're in the air and you're watching it and there's, like... and Kevin Costner's stressed out because it, are the are the astronauts going to survive or not? I'm in coach, just like already not a good flyer, being like I'm so stressed out. I'm so stressed, so stressed out. out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a good flyer. I do love space and all things like NASA and space too. related, but movies that center around a very stressful launch like uh, i can't watch apollo 13 i'll get <gasps> nauseous because I, w- I just i mean i've i've seen it i've yeah. seen it yeah but like can't return to it because i'm just so stressed out that and i know i know that they make it back i've seen the movie i've seen it i know that they're fine but it's very stressful listen i watch that movie at least once a month and i am that is not a lie or an exaggeration it is such a good fucking movie but literally i've seen this movie easily three or four dozen times and yet every time they like crash land into the water i still cry like i'm still always so yeah. like they made it back <laughs> it's like i still they have an emotional in the reaction water. and i'm mm-hmm. like you know this isn't you know what's happening you know they're gonna come back yeah you know yeah. you know the like tom hanks's yeah. end speech by heart our mission was, was called a successful yeah. failure because we returned safely, but never made it to the moon. Like, yes, you know they come back. Well, why are you doing this to yourself? Why are you crying? Why are you <laughs> why crying? Why am I yeah. crying? Yeah. 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 I, uh, yeah. The Paul 13 is like one of the movies that I, it's just, I'm, I I have to be in a good headspace and I'm just never in a good headspace. Mm. <laughs> you know. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm hard. I'm hard. Anywho, back to Katherine Johnson. This is also what's crazy. So Katherine Johnson died on February 24th, 2020. She died what? just last year <gasps> at age 101. Oh In her God. honor, NASA has dedicated the Katherine G. Johnson, oh my God, computational, computational right. research facility at the Langley Research Center to commem- <gasps> commemorate the hard work she did to help take NASA to the stars. Yes. National Geographic getting us all in our feels. All in our feels. But yeah, she died last, literally almost a year ago. In 10 days, it'll be a year ago. Almost a year ago. 10 days, it'll be a year. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 101. 101. Oh, I hope. I hope to like Unreal. achieve with my life something like what she has achieved. Now, I'm not putting people into space, but you know. You land my spaceship every day. Oh my god, you're in the best. Daily, you're like, I did the calculations. Let's get you back into the <laughs> <Okay>. atmosphere. <laughs> Here's your roll of duct tape and your duct tape. We're going to slingshot around the moon. <laughs> We're going to slingshot around the moon. Um, yep. okay. My next one is Gwendolyn Brooks. This is so this is coming from the Poetry Foundation. So she is one of the most highly regarded, influential, and widely read poets of the 20th century for American poetry. 
She was a much honored poet mm-hmm. even in her lifetime with the distinction of being the first black author to win the Pulitzer Prize. Love. Love. She was also a poetry consultant to the Library of Congress, hitting, a, hitting oh us right where God. we live. Yes. 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 The first black woman to hold that position, and she was poet laureate of the state of Illinois. I love that. Yep. I love poets. I love, I love, it's great. It's great. I feel like we all have an appreciation after the inauguration of Joe Biden. We all have like, oh my God. I, mean, I feel like people, I mean, like obviously people know what poetry is. They like people have an idea of what a poet laureate maybe does. But I feel like after mm-hmm. that, Amanda Gorman's performance, it was like, mm. oh no, like this is poetry, like capital P. Like this is. Right. This is epic work. And, like, what was profound to me is not – I mean, obviously, what she did at Biden's inauguration, her her work there. And then also it's, like, the Super Bowl. She did a poem before the Super Bowl of all things. <laughs> I didn't see – how like did I miss all that? Things. Yeah, it was, it was right – it was at the very beginning. It was, like, a – she did a – they were honoring three um, – three people at the Super Bowl and one was I believe a teacher one was a nurse and one was maybe a just a community advocate and she wrote a poem that was like it was pre-recorded but like and it was a poem about these three individuals and what they did and how they served yeah. their community and it was just I mean oh. I was just sitting there being like oh my god there's a full ass poem being done before the Super Bowl. Before, before the Super Bowl. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers play the Kansas City Chiefs <laughs> in Tampa. This is wild. Wild. So uh, Gwendolyn Brooks was born in Topeka, Kansas, but her family moved to Chicago when she was young. Her father Love. was a janitor who had hoped to become a doctor. Her mother was a school teacher and classically trained pianist. And they were very supportive of their daughter's passion for reading and writing. Bless them. I love that. Always nurture. Mm -hmm. Brooks was 13 when she first published, when she published her first poem, Eventide, which appeared in American Childhood, which is a publication. By the time she was 17, she was publishing poems frequently in the Chicago Defender, a newspaper serving Chicago's African-American population. Love it. After attending junior college and working for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, she developed her craft mm-hmm. in poetry workshops and began writing poems focusing on urban black on the urban black experience that comprised her first collection, A Street in Bronzeville, which was published in 1945. Many of Brooks's works display a political consciousness, especially those from the 1960s and later, with several of her poems reflecting the civil rights activism of that period. Her activism and her interest in nurturing black literature led her to leave major publisher Harper and Rowe, in favor of fledgling black publishing companies. In the 1970s, she chose Dudley Randall's Broadside Press to publish her poetry collections called Riot in 1969, Family Pictures in 1970, Aloneness 1971, Aurora 1972, and Beckonings in 1975, and Report from Part 1 of 1972, which was the first volume of her autobiography. So she, like... She was a great writer. She was getting published. She was with a big publisher and she was like, no, I'm going to go like, I'm going to take my name. You don't need me. I'm going to take my mm. name and give it like, you know, take it. To, I'm going to take it and, and work with this other company, this black owned publishing company and give them some elevation and, and, you know, help them build their, their roster. Love. I think that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love poets. Okay, my next one, again, I feel like a name that we've heard a lot, but I know personally, I've hear, I hear all the time, there's schools named after him, and I'm just like, what actually is his story? And it's Booker T. Washington. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you did yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So this is all coming from Tuskegee University. So born on April 5th, 1856 in Franklin County, Virginia, Booker Talifero was the son of an unknown white man and Jane, an enslaved cook of James Burroughs, a small planter. Booker wow. spent his first nine years as a slave on the Burroughs farm. In 1865, his mother took her children to Madeline, West Virginia, to join her husband, who had gone there earlier and found work in the salt mines. At age nine, Booker was put to work packing salt. 
And between the ages of 10 and 12, he worked in a coal mine. He attended school while continuing to work in the mines. In 1871, he went to work as a houseboy for the wife of General Lewis Ruffner, who owned the mines. Hmm. In 1872, at age 16, Booker T. Washington entered Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute of Virginia. Washington traveled most of the distance from Malden to Hampton on foot, arriving penniless. And it was like, it's something like hundreds of miles that he walked to get to this school. Wow. His entrance examination to Hampton was to clean a room. The teacher inspected his work with a spotless white handkerchief and Booker was admitted. Wow. He was given work as a janitor to pay the cost of his room and board. And Armstrong arranged for a white benefactor to pay his tuition. Wow. At Hampton, Washington studied academic subjects and agriculture, which included working in the fields and pigsties. Mm -hmm. He also learned lessons in personal cleanliness and good manners. I mean, this was education in the days. It's also, it's like along with learning our arts and sciences, let's learn how to be polite. Let's learn how to take a shower. In 1880, so, so he goes to the school and does the school. And then in 1880, a bill that included a yearly appropriation of $2,000 was passed by the Alabama state legislator to establish a school for blacks in Macon County. This action was generated by two men, Lewis Adams, a former slave and George W. Campbell, a former slave owner. On February 12, 1881, Governor Rufus Willis Cobb signed the bill into law establishing the Tuskegee Normal School for the Training of Black Teachers. So keep this in mind. This is important. Armstrong, who was one of the teachers at the school that um, Washington attended, was invited to recommend a white teacher as principal of this new school. Instead, he suggested Washington, who was accepted. When Washington arrived at Tuskegee, he found that no land or buildings had been acquired for the projected school, nor was there any money for these purposes since the appropriation was for salaries only. (gasps) So basically, this bill passed $2,000 to go towards this school, but there's no land and no building for said school. The $2,000 is to pay the people to teach, but to teach in what? To teach in what? We don't know. There's nothing. Wow. There's nothing allocated. Undaunted, Washington began selling the idea of the school, recruiting students, and seeking support from local whites. The school opened July 4, 1881, in a shanty loaned by a black church. With money borrowed from Hampton Institute's treasurer, Washington purchased an abandoned 100-acre plantation on the outskirts of Tuskegee. Students built a kiln, made bricks for the building, and sold bricks to raise money. And within a few years, they built a classroom building, a dining hall, a girl's dormitory, and a chapel. So, like, he's recruiting students. The students are helping literally build Build the actual structure for the school. Wow. By 1888, so another seven years and change later, the 540-acre Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute had an enrollment of more than 400 and offered training in such skills as carpentry, cabinet making, printing, shoemaking, and tinsmithing. Boys also studied farming and dairying, while girls learned such domestic skills as cooking and sewing, because this is 1888. Right. What are you going to do? I know, right? On Tuskegee's 25th anniversary... Washington had transformed the idea into a 2,000-acre, 83-building campus that, combined with such personal property as equipment, livestock, and stock and trade, was valued at $831,000. So he went from having $2,000 to teach at a school that didn't exist to building a school to the school now becoming a full-ass campus Yep. That him and the students built themselves and is now worth over $800,000. Wow. Through the progress at Tuskegee, Washington showed that an oppre- oppressed people could advance. His concept of practical education was a con- contribution to the general field of education. His writings included 40 books. And among his works was an autobiography titled Up From Slavery, which was written in 1901. Character Building, 1902. My Larger Education, 1911, and The Man Farthest Down in 1912. And then this is just kind of like a fun fact to end on about him. Again, like obviously a massive legacy. Mm-hmm. 
On October 16, 1901, Washington became the first Black person to dine at the White House, where he was there at the invitation of, you guessed it, Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. And so, yeah, he's basically like this major, major figure of education and specifically Black education. And so that's why you see a lot of, like, there's... Booker T. Washington schools. There's, yeah, all sorts of educational things that are dedicated to him. Um, And it's literally because he built a full-ass school, school, university that (laughs) with his $2,000 and a dream to service the education of of Black students. So very inspiring. Very inspiring. Wow. That's Booker T. So let's go into a rapid fire round let's do it. Let's um, do it. with our last few minutes. So you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. So yeah. rapid fire. So George Crumb, who lived from 1822 to 1914, initially developed potato chips in the 1850s for a restaurant customer. Love it. Thank you, George. I'm so happy I'm that so he did happy that. I'm so happy for George Crumb. Thank you so much, George. I ate George, so many Doritos yesterday. Some sources say it was for wealthy financier Cornelius Vanderbilt. While serving as hotel chef in Saratoga Springs, New York, he dubbed his creation Saratoga Chips, and a popular new snack was born. And that's coming from mm. the Lemelson Center for the Study of Innovation and for the Study of Innovation and Invention. Love. Yeah. Love. Okay, mine my first one is Dorothy Height. This is from Bustle. Dorothy Height was a civil rights activist who was considered the unsung hero of the civil rights era. She advocated for improving the lives of black women and also pushed for women's rights. In addition to leading the National Council of Negro Women for 40 years, she helped found the National Women's Political Caucus alongside feminist activists like Gloria Steinem. And she received the Congressional Medal for her work in 2004. So Gloria Steinem obviously gets a lot of credit for the women's rights movement. Um, and Dorothy Height is was alongside her, shall yeah. we say. All right, you're up okay. next. My next one. The next one is Mark E. Dean, who was born in 1957. He holds three of the nine patents for the original IBM personal computer, as well as many other patents wow. received during his IBM career. He was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 1997 for U.S. patent 4528-626. For, quote, a microcomputer system with bus control means for peripheral processing devices, close quote. So he, like, Mm. was part of, like, the invention of IBM and all, like, personal computers. I mean, we owe a lot to this man. I work from home. We sure do. Partly because of his work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, We sure do. mm -hmm. We sure do. My next one is also an inventor, a lot of inventors. And it's this is coming from the Iowa Department of Human Rights. Weirdly enough. Oh, my God. I didn't even know that such a thing existed. I know. I'm so glad. I know. <laughs> I, I don't think he's even from Iowa, but they had, like, a great sort of accumulation of in, influential black Americans. So I was like, oh, all right, great, awesome. Iowa. Great. So this is Benjamin Banneker. And Benjamin Banneker was born on November 9th, 1731 in Elliott City, Maryland. And he was one of America's great intellectuals and scientists. While still in his youth, he made a wooden clock which kept accurate time past the date that Banneker died. This Mm. clock is believed to be the first clock wholly made in America. In 1791, he served on projects to make a survey for the District of Columbia, helping to design the layout for our nation's capital. He was internationally known for his accomplishments and became an advisor to President Thomas Jefferson. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's Mm -hmm. crazy. Next up is Jane Bolin. She became the nation's first black woman judge in 1939. Mm. She was the first black woman to graduate from Yale Law School and would serve on New York's family court for four decades. Besides dealing with domestic cases, she worked to stop probation officers from getting assignments based on the color of their skin. During her career, she also Mm. worked with Eleanor Roosevelt to create a program that would intervene to stop young boys from committing crimes. That's from Marie Claire. I love that. I love that. Okay, my next one. uh, This is from Bustle. Dr. Alexa Kennedy became the first black woman neurosurgeon in the United States in 1981. She helped save Mm. thousands of lives, mostly children, according to Changing the Face of Medicine. 
Her home state of Michigan recognized her milestones by inducting her into the Women's Hall of Fame in 1989, and she was named Teacher of the Year by Children's Hospital. So first black female neurosurgeon. Damn. In the United States, Dr. Alexa Kennedy. All right, this is my last one. Frederick McKinley Jones. He was born in 1893 and died in 1961. He developed the first reliable refrigerator truck. And also refrigerated railroad cards to carry foods over long distances without spoiling. Honestly, this man, where would we be without this man? Yeah, honestly. (laughs) Honestly, we would have, where would we be doing? In 1991, he was the first African American to receive the U.S. National Medal of Technology and Innovation and was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2007 for U.S. Patent 2303857 for his, quote, air conditioner for vehicles, close quote. OMG. Thank you. Also coming from the level. Thank you so much. Thank you for the refrigerators. I just. Honestly, he's a. I'm going to think of him every every time I see a fresh direct truck. Yep, absolutely. Okay, and here's my last one. This is coming from National Geographic again. And this is Bessie Coleman. Mm. Again, this is from National Geographic, and they're fun with how they describe her. The skies have never seen a pilot like Bessie Coleman before. <laughs> she was the first. I know. I know. I know. Oh, I know. man. She was the first African-American woman to obtain an international pilot's license, soaring to new heights that black people in the United States had never reached before. But as a black woman in the 1920s, she faced many obstacles because of her race and gender. And she was quoted as famously saying... The air is the only place free from prejudice. Wow. Oh, that's Bessie Coleman. I, I really know. like that sentiment. It's a nice there's an, there's, Nature is an equalizer. Exactly right. Because we're yep. all humans, which yep. is crazy. We're all yep, yep. humans. But that is our episode on Black History Month, you guys. I mean, again, so many... <laughs> So many people to honor, and we will continue to honor and explore throughout this process and try to bring forth people who are not normally in our educational systems. Yep. But this was just a way to honor Black History Month while we're in Black History Month, because a lot's going on right now that we can sometimes not be aware or forget, or it just doesn't have the prominence that it should have. So happy, happy Black History Month. And if you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. You can rate us. You can review us. You can subscribe to us. And we love you so, so much. And we'll see you next Wednesday. Goodbye.